Entering the Freedom Hut. How libs are unsecuring New York City. We have a attempted assassination of police officers here to discuss and what it means for wider crime waves here. Plus, Biden is spiraling in New Hampshire, looking like he might even end up in fifth. We'll get into that and a vehicle attack on Trump voter registration. Also, Vinman, the deep stater, is fired and the Oscars go for broke with woke coming up. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One Make no mistake. America, great. you're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Always a pleasure and an honor. We have so much to discuss. I just want to kick it off right away by diving into the reality of liberal policies in major cities. This has been a recurring theme. You've seen many stories about this stretching back, not just for months, but really for for years now, that in cities where there's been a tremendous concentration of wealth, where there have been... uh, huge influxes of people from around the world. Remember, America's major cities in particular have a a global component of the economy when it comes to their human capital. People from all over the world move to New York City, Los Angeles, San Francisco, you name it, any major U.S. city. And in places where there is both a one-party control of city government as well as one-party control of state government, so that's really New York and California at the top of the list, we see what liberals do and what happens when they get their way. And the short answer to this test is, it's not good. It's actually a disaster. It's something that we should all view as a cautionary tale. Of course, the libs don't view it that way. They think that You know, to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs. Workers of the world unite. You know, socialism isn't free, even if it destroys freedom. They're going for it. All kinds of policies. Ideas have now come back. There's a cycle to these things. Oh, crime is not something that you should punish. Crime is a societal ill. It's something that results from the rich not paying their fair share. It's people that are are doing their part, paying their bills, raising their families, taking care of their homes. Uh, They're not giving enough, you see. That's why they're being assaulted on the street. That's why people are jumping the subway turnstiles here in New York City. This is a return of the the eat-the-rich mentality, blame the wealthy. And by the way, wealthy just means having enough money to pay your bills and not getting sent to prison for breaking the law in this formulation. If you fall into that category, if you're a productive citizen, and I did say citizen, or if you're a productive legal immigrant, uh, you are somebody that the Democrats think isn't doing his or her fair share. And that's why we have this spike in criminality. And that's also why we have now an attempted assassination, really a double assassination attempt from an individual here in New York City who went and shot cops in a uh, in a patrol van hit one of them. Uh, The other one was quick on the accelerator, was able to get the vehicle out of harm's way. And then the same guy went into a police station and started shooting at officers. Now, this is not going to get very much attention 
in most of the liberal press. They'd much rather focus on the Buddha judge versus Biden. Who's the most amazing? Because we can't handle all of their amazingness. I mean, that's that's where the liberal media's focus is right now, trying to convince the American people that the Democrat primary is not a bunch of losers. Even the, even the winner will be a loser because he's not going to have a prayer of defeating Donald Trump. So their focus is there. Their focus is certainly not on the tent cities in Los Angeles, the needles all over the streets, as well as human excrement smeared on streets of San Francisco, the dramatic increase in robberies, in car thefts, and even quality of life crimes like public urination, which no longer is even something you will get arrested for in New York City. All of that now is being turned, and we are seeing the results of it. It's, it's as though they want to make New York into Baltimore. It's, it's as though the plan here is to make Los Angeles more like Detroit. Failed cities that have been plagued with criminality and dysfunction and lawlessness for decades. And what is the constant in all of that? What is the one factor you can always point to in cities where there is this lawlessness, despair, criminality, dysfunction? Violence. Democrats are calling the shots. Democrats are getting their way. They are the ones. They are the ones who determine that there will be a change in whether we support law enforcement. They're the ones who determine whether judges can, in the interest of public safety, hold somebody who has committed a crime. And they make the wrong decisions because their mentality about all of these things is still wrong. They're still rooted in the talking points about social justice, the talking points about identity politics. The Democratic Party is so desperate for votes, especially at the national level, that any degree of pandering, particularly Democrat pandering in urban communities, is, is expected. I mean, you, you cannot be a successful Democrat politician today without at least giving some lip service, at least giving some of the talking points about how law enforcement is biased and racist and uh, full of people engaged in brutality. and Now, n not the FBI, mind you, because the FBI is very useful in the Trump-bashing deep state nonsense. So all of a sudden, the FBI is beyond reproach. Because remember, liberals have no principles on these matters. There's nothing that they will assert when it's against their interest. So while they'll say law enforcement is full of corruption and racism, well, not the most most powerful federal law enforcement body, the FBI. The FBI is perfect. The FBI, especially at the senior ranks, not the rank and file, the senior ranks, they never make mistakes. Well, here in New York City, we have an attempted assassination of police officers, and people will say on the left, well, it's just a crazy person. Well, let's step back from this for a second. If this were someone running around with a MAGA hat on, trying to kill police officers, do you think that for one second they would say, well, that's just a crazy person? No, in fact, liberals spent a lot of time making sure that they tried to damage all Trump voters because of that person who was clearly deranged living in a vehicle covered in, in MAGA paraphernalia who sent uh, dummy bombs to CNN. Right? That, was, that was the fault of all Trump voters. But his anti-police rhetoric something that can inspire individuals who perhaps are not particularly well in the head, but are still functioning and would still be held to account fully for their crimes. Could anti-police rhetoric result in individuals taking it upon themselves to kill cops? We know the answer is yes. We've seen this play out before. We have, for example, the mass assassination 
of police officers in Dallas, Texas, by somebody who said and was known to be inspired by Black Lives Matter anti-police rhetoric. And I've been to the marches, and I'll never forget the one time Wolf Blitzer had me on his show and, and I debated Van Jones on this one. Van, who I've told you is an adept debater on this issue, I think he is quite, quite wrong and often disingenuous on police violence and police brutality, because I know the numbers, I know the stats, and it does not bear out what the libs, what the left always tell you. The left wants you to believe that there's, uh, whenever there's a close call shooting between, uh, between police and an African-American suspect, that racism is at the root of it. Meanwhile, the largest national studies they've ever done show that for the same conduct in the same situation, officers are more likely to actually shoot per capita a white suspect. And that is largely because of the fear that officers have that they will be considered racist, even if their lives are threatened, if they have to draw their weapon and use it with an African-American suspect. So the people don't know that. They don't know that, that there's been studies of this. They don't know that criminal justice institutes have looked into this because that's not part of the narrative. But the narrative that we were hearing from people like Van Jones during the Black Lives Matter era of the Obama administration, remember, Trump is the big, bad, awful, mean, racist man that's dividing the country racially. But it was under the Obama administration when there were race riots burning down sections of cities in this country. It was under the Obama administration that there were there were entire stores engulfed in flames in Ferguson, Missouri, that there were uh, there were mass lootings going on of drugstores and, and department stores in Baltimore. It, was, it has not been happening under the Trump administration. And you can tell me that, you know, tone matters or tone doesn't matter, but it can't only matter when the libs want it to. And what have we had here in New York City? We've seen this steady drumbeat. And this is for those of you that say, oh, Buck, it's New York. Yeah, but you, don't, you have to remember, if you live in a state where there are any Democrats, especially Democrats who are in control, look at Virginia. How does Virginia feel right now? A lot, a lot of great Republicans all over the wonderful state of Virginia. Virginia is a beautiful place. I have a special place for it in my heart. My, I have family from there. Libs are trying to ruin Virginia right now. They get into charge and they do this stuff. They make it impossible for lawful gun owners to keep their weapons. They make it seem like that somehow is going to make people safer when we all know the statistics show the opposite. They make it more lenient on criminals. They, they believe much more in a catch and release attitude from the police. Let more stuff slide at the lower levels. You know, the equivalent of you know, public urination, public drunkenness, uh, turnstile jumping, these quality of life crimes. I mean, we went through... A, a massive spike nationwide in criminality. You look at the 70s and into the 80s. And we learn this lesson of you have to enforce the law. Broken windows is a real concept. If you don't stop people from doing small things, they will go on to do bigger things. And you want law enforcement to have that contact with individuals along the way who are lawbreakers. Because the person who is jumping a turnstile is statistically more likely to be the person that's also wanted for an, a rape or an assault, or it, this is just the reality of the world we live in. And we learned this lesson, but libs want to unlearn it. And they want to, and, and if you think, oh, well, that's just in the cities, oh, just wait till you get a, you know, a Democrat, a Democrat uh, council in charge of your, of your county, or when you have to send your kid to a, a city or a university town where they got people like Mayor Pete Buttigieg in charge. It, it's pretty amazing that this guy's running 
for the highest political office in the land when Mayor Pete has a, a horrific uh, record in, in terms of the, the Democrats always focus on the alleged uh, impropriety, the alleged racism of the police department. How about the fact that South Bend, which is where Notre Dame is, is a really dangerous city per capita. A lot of people are getting shot there. Lib policies, you know, don't, don't want to be too tough. Don't want to have, uh, you know, eight years of Obama administration. You don't want Eric Holder's Justice Department coming after you and looking at your police department saying you're engaged in systemic racism. I mean, look what they did in Ferguson. In Ferguson, they did an investigation. Turned out that Mike Brown was shot because he was trying to assault and and murder a police officer. Police officer did nothing wrong. Not a little wrong. Not, oh, it was a close call. That officer, Darren Wilson, did nothing wrong. Just like Kavanaugh did nothing wrong. Libs don't care. Their narrative is all that matters. And so what they do, they went into Ferguson and they churned over everything until they could find, okay, so Wilson... You know, he was just defending himself, and it was, a, it was a clean shoot, as they say in law enforcement. It was a legal, a justified shoot. And then they found that the, the department was giving out too many speeding tickets, and they were giving them mostly to minorities, and there was racism, and that's what they were saying. Because the narrative has to be protected even when the overall charge is, is wrong. And there were people, I remember here in New York City, who were still driving around during uh, they had it was kind of like a float in a parade. I'll never forget this. I had photos of it, and they had a mural to Mike Brown during a Black Lives Matter protest here in New York City, marching up Sixth Avenue. They've turned him into a martyr. I mean, the guy strong arm robbed a small business owner, and then decided he was going to beat up and steal the gun of a police officer, according to numerous African American witnesses who saw it. They haven't changed the narrative one bit. Racist white cops. Racist white cops. Oh, okay. That's the story that we always have to hear. When law enforcement do not feel backed up, they have to take into consideration their own safety and their ability to be with and provide for their own families. You know, they, they don't want to be in a position where all of a sudden they're told that they're, uh, they're under investigation. The, the law enforcement officers don't want to use their guns ever. They just want to keep people safe, do their job, and go home at night. I know because I used to work with them every day. They're not going out there looking to draw their guns. Not, they don't think this is the Wild West. But here in New York City, liberalism is running amok. Now I see it. I see it myself. Every couple of days now, people jumping the turnstile here. On my way in to do this show, I see people right next to me jumping the turnstile. People... Uh, covered in their own excrement and filth, lying down on the floor of subway cars. Police are not are told not to do anything about it. Don't do anything. It's that person. Let them have their freedom to wallow in their own filth on the floor of a subway car. You know, never mind the public health risks, the risks to that individual. This is de Blasio's New York we're living in now. Keep in mind that de Blasio's New York, there there is an ink blot effect from this. There is a a way that other places. When they see the policies implemented, they have their political pressures to do the same liberal craziness in their town, in their city. Right. So it spreads. There's a ripple effect. It's a stone dropping in the water. So don't think that this is just our problem here, although this is the largest city in America. This is a problem for all of us. And it is a reminder that one of the great weaknesses of liberalism is the rejection of facts and history in favor of emotion and what feels good. Unfortunately, what feels good in New York City for some people leads to lawlessness, chaos, and violence. 
You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. We keep hearing the word at our press conference, this was a miracle. We were lucky. Well, we have to stop relying on luck. Some of the same elected officials that are standing at that podium today are talking about how lucky we are. Well, sometimes it's their words that are causing this. We talk about the protesters that are yelling, we want dead cops. Those words meant something. And people listen, and they try to kill cops. But who's leading them? Some of the elected officials that stand here today nodding their heads when we speak are the ones that's leading those crowds, leading those demonstrators, putting the words in those protesters' mouth. Well, now it's real. 12 hours, two cops shot. That's right. Two cops shot in 12 hours here in New York City. We've had about a 70% year-to-year at this point, a couple months in, increase in vehicular theft here, 35% increase in uh, robberies. And remember that just like the way it takes it takes a while for socialism to ruin an economy. This is one of the great problems of it. And if you only have partial socialism, it's even slower. So the drain, right, socialism's ability to just drain out productive resources and dynamism in an economy is not if it's not total socialism, you know, the, the, the bleed out is slower. Same thing is true of security in a city. It takes time. It does not happen overnight that all of a sudden bad policies show us how dangerous a place can become. But that's what we're heading for now in New York City. Once you get to a spike in murders, once the murder rate is up 30 or 40 percent, guess what? Then people are scared. Then people start leaving the city. Then people don't want to be there. Then then investment starts to dry up. Then you have more urban decay. Then you have more hopelessness, despair. And the bad guys start to be emboldened. They start to feel like, well, maybe we can take this town again. Once you get to that point, now you're in a crisis situation. We are we are approaching that tipping point here in New York. They're approaching it on the West Coast, too. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, we've been warning about this. We've been warning about this since 2012. We warned about it in 2014, and we were ignored, and two cops were killed. We warned it the other day. And what happened? 12-hour time period, we're here in Lincoln Hospital twice because police officers were almost assassinated. They weren't lucky. They were fast. Fortunately, these police officers moved fast. Our officer yesterday threw it in drive and got out of there and then got himself to the hospital. Today, we had police officers in the station house that were lucky enough to be able to dive out of the way. A police officer that was shot was able to shoot back. That's not luck, that's skill. Start backing our police officers, our elected officials that stand and nod with us. It's time you open your mouth and say, this must stop. The disrespect that is shown to police officers, and keep in mind, you know, New York City, the NYPD, I know it well. It's a very diverse department. You have a, a tremendous number of, uh, of people who are first-generation, uh, first families of first-generation immigrants who, who are here in the NYPD. You have a lot of diversity in that department. Uh, you have a very large police department. And it is one of the great success, one of the great criminal justice success stories of, of my lifetime, what's happened here in New York. I've told you before, and this is the absolute truth, and anybody from here like I am would tell you the same that it used to be if you went into Central Park at night and you got robbed, people were like, well, you shouldn't have been in the park at night. 
mean, that was really because it was just so widespread. You should have known you should have known better than to think you were safe in the most you know famous park in on the East Coast. Some would say one of the most famous parks in the world, at least for an urban park. Right? I mean, you know, you should have known better than to go in there. That was that was really the attitude. I had friends who were getting mugged all the time. It was just, and if you if you were mugged and you weren't bleeding when you went to the police station, it was, well, you know, be more careful next time. And then all of a sudden it changed. Thank you. Rudy, Rudy Giuliani these days is known as the guy who's, you know, bouncing around Ukraine trying to find the truth about Hunter Biden. But in my era, Rudy Giuliani is really known as a guy who cleaned up New York City and then was running command, running point on 9-11. That's the Rudy Giuliani that I always think of first and foremost. And this city, it was a miracle, a miracle. I, I had friends who even as, as recently as, you know, 10 years ago, oh, they'd never been to New York. And they'd say, oh, is it still really dangerous? I'd say, dangerous? You could go literally take a sleeping bag and lie in the middle of Times Square overnight. And there's a very good chance this was more tr- is true 10 years ago, not as true now, that you'd wake up and you'd have all your stuff and everything would be fine. You wouldn't even get robbed while you were asleep in Times Square overnight. I mean, I wouldn't recommend you try this out, but I think that was probably true under the Bloomberg administration. Under de Blasio, I'm getting worried that increasingly if you tried Buck's little experiment, you'd wake up and all you'd be left in is your tidy whities and, you know, that's it. They just take everything you got because the city is changing. The city's changing because the criminal element, and it's always less than 1%, we always talk about the 1%, meaning the bad rich people, less than 1% of this city of any city is the criminal element the people that repeatedly are the ones who are committing crimes right it's true and it's true in every community you know you go to the, you go to the bronx here you go to queens it's less than 1% that are committing the crimes on a regular basis but when you embolden that less than 1% then all of a sudden you start to get waves you get spikes you have real problems and then the only way to deal with that is more aggressive policing more police resources And when you come into greater contact with an emboldened criminal element, guess what? You're going to have to make more aggressive arrests. You're going to have to take people down to the ground. And that's part of the problem here. With de Blasio, and this is, by the way, the same thing you get in L.A., the same thing you get in San Fran, the same thing you get in Baltimore. Remember in Baltimore, we were told that the cops broke some kid's neck by giving him a rough ride in a van? I mean— uh, what was what, what, the whole thing? And the, the guy driving the van was a, an older an older officer who himself was, uh, if our memory serves, was was African American, and they snapped this guy's neck by giving him a rough ride in the streets of Baltimore. I mean, what were, were they? I mean, think about this: were they doing some kind of evil Knievel trick? Were they flying over a riverbank off of a ramp? I mean, how are they doing? Mean, but but people believed it. They believed the narrative. You know, Freddie Gray murdered by cops. Murdered by cops, Mike Brown, they said in Ferguson. Murder. Now, by the way, sometimes cops do murder people. In fact, the NYPD, they used to have this phrase, perps in uniform. They would talk about it. And they would say, sometimes cops go bad. And the, you know who hates cops who go bad? Other cops, because it makes their lives harder. It undermines the work they're doing. And it undermines their sense of mission and purpose. One of the great things about local law enforcement, this is true for you all across the country with your county sheriff, you know, your state troopers, the people around you that are trying to keep your neighborhood safe. They're from the areas that they're policing. Right. I mean, you know, law enforcement, nobody lives in uh, nobody lives in Nebraska and then goes every day to go police 
you know, Alabama or, or Maine, right? I mean, you're policing the areas that you live in. So people have an investment. They want, they want their neighborhoods. They want their state, their city, their town to be safer. So it's one of the, one of the great things about law enforcement is people take pride in this. They want their community to be, to be better. But the lib narrative here that you hear, and it was shameless under the eight years of the Obama administration, the media, by the way, all these all these wimps, uh, the CNN anchors you see going on, oh, they pretend so much to care about, about police violence. They all live in mansions. They don't give a crap about these poor communities. Give me a break. The easiest, the easiest cheapest virtue signaling you will ever see is you know, Aaron Burnett and Jake Tapper and... And uh, you know, Rachel Maddow and Stephanop, oh, police in these minority communities. I'm just show, so upset about what's going on. And then they go to neighborhoods where I, I can tell you this, not a lot of diversity. And some of them probably live in houses or in, or in developments, depending on where they are, where there's armed security, even certainly the case in, in Los Angeles and other places. I'll never forget when I went to interview, uh, what's her name, Alyssa Milano. Very anti-gun, but had armed guards protecting the road, you know, four miles from her house that you can't even get into unless you're on a list and the armed guard checks you off. He had a nice sidearm on him, but I'm like, oh, but but I can't own a gun because I'm not rich enough to live in a development like that, you know, in a, in, a, in a place where there's mansions that have people patrolling with, with uh, sidearms paid to protect them, in addition to the police, by the way. So you're seeing the lib policies play out here. And you're seeing what happens when there are people who get away with mocking, ridiculing police. Social media has really magnified this. Some of you have probably seen it. There are these videos of people dousing police officers in water, throwing things like, you know, throwing buckets of water at cops and stuff like that. And no, that's not that's not okay. And if somebody has to get told, you know what, you're coming downtown for disorderly, and, you know, we're going to put you in front of a judge on this one. And they decide that they're going to resist arrest because they're not getting arrested today, which is a mentality you see in some of these videos. Then they're going to get wrestled to the ground and it's going to be rough and it's going to be unsightly. It's going to be uncomfortable. Because that's what law enforcement, ultimately law enforcement is the state implementing its monopoly of force with law behind it. Right. That, that, but that's what law enforcement is. The state, the state claims a monopoly on the use of force with the, with the only exception of self-defense for individuals. But, you know, you come with me or we're going to make you come with me. That is that is the essence. That is the foundation of law enforcement activity. And when you start having cops getting ridiculed, having buckets of water thrown at them, uh, and then uh, people that are videotaping arrests and screaming at officers, obstructing the enforcement of laws, getting in the way you know, thinking that they should help pull somebody away from officers when they're trying to tackle them down to make an arrest. All this has been happening. And de Blasio, who is one of the great idiot politicians of our time, smart enough to get elected in New York City, but only because Anthony Weiner was sending photos of his, you know, downstairs area to people, including, as we know, somebody that got him sent to prison because she was underage. Uh, if, if Anthony Weiner's not doing that, I don't think the Blasio actually becomes the mayor of New York, but that's a whole other conversation for another time. But everyone's recognizing that there's this moment here where the country overall, we're getting richer, we're getting more prosperous. Thank you, President Trump. Things are going well. People are feeling good. We're moving in the right direction. It's happening. We are moving in the right direction as a country. But in places where the libs are calling the shots, 
starting to backslide, starting to have problems, see things go the wrong way. Nothing is really more important to an individual than their safety and day in and day out. Right. The the first obligation of the state. And this is now going to take us back to to Hobbes and the state of nature. The first obligation of the state is to make sure that you know some brigand doesn't come along and stab you and take your, your purse full of gold coins or something, right? I mean, that's the first obligation of the state, kicking it old school there. Well, when the state starts to fail in that regard in the greatest concentrations of population because Democrats are in charge, we should all pay attention to it and we should stop it because there's real consequences here. Just want to hear really quickly before we uh, move along to this is the NYPD Commissioner Dermot Shea. I mean, they're, they're, they're screaming this from the rooftops, folks, that this is about the way politicians and the media depict police top to bottom. This is causing problems. Play 29. A premeditated assassination attempt. And I said it last night. But just remember, these things are not unrelated. We had people marching through the streets of New York City recently. It brings me immediately back to 2014, where we had the same thing right before Ramos and Lou. We had people marching in New York City last week, and I condemned it, and I condemn it right here again today, using profanities against the police department. Everyone should be speaking out against this. And you have to be careful about the words you use, whether it's on social media or in written papers or speaking, because words matter, and words affect people's behavior. And here we have New York City police officers twice in 12 hours targeted. And again, by the grace of God that we're not planning a funeral. Is a Do words matter or not? Libs tell us that Donald Trump is ruining the country just with mean tweets. By the way, tweets that are mean usually to people who completely deserve it. But they'll tell us that Trump's words inspire violence. They'll say this all the time. But what about running all these stories about cops assuming that there is uh, police misconduct in close call shootings or in a shooting where there is some dispute as to what the facts were? De Blasio's point is, you know, he, he always pays off, pays off the family of somebody, even if there's no criminal wrongdoing by the officer. And this is this is what libs do. And they'll even go. I mean, here in New York, they gave tens of millions of dollars to the families of the so-called Central Park Five. I, people look at me like I'm crazy. I, I've watched the interrogation videos. Those kids were present, and yet, you know, present during that rape, and yet we're told, oh, no, because the city now says, without any trial, without any jury, the city just says, oh, sorry, here, we made a mistake. Here's a big check. They're just, this is just a Blasio and others trying to buy votes of people, and they buy votes on the backs of police officers of all backgrounds, ethnicities, and colors who are trying to keep their communities safe. But this is how the libs play the game. And when officers, he mentioned two officers there that a few years ago were assassinated, again, during the height of the Black Lives Matter rhetoric and the frenzy around all that, it can be the blood of officers that they buy these votes with. That's where we're heading for again if we don't shape up and get our politicians here in New York City and across the country in these Democrat strongholds to stop ruining gains that have been made in safety and in policing, decades, decades long, hard fought gains that they're just giving away now to the bad guys because they think that other people will vote for them because of the lib narrative that cops are the bad guys. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
So, Riley, what has been helpful to you in combating racism? Uh, I think it's helpful and important to talk to other white people about racism. And I think a lot of people... They don't want to be racist. They don't think that they're racist, but they also don't know some of the things that they believe or say are and can be racist. And I think one of the like effective ways is just to talk and kind of help teach them about why some of the things they believe or say or think are wrong. Not necessarily racist, but that they're wrong. And that'll sort of like chip away and you know, contribute to some development in this area, but not necessarily take somebody from like being a racist to not being a racist in one conversation. And it's just always being open to learning about racist things that we may have said or done without judgment and defensiveness. I just think like, like totally like racism is just like, you're just like racist and you're just like, you know, like I'm AOC's boyfriend and I'm doing this video on, like, racism. And, like, even if you're not being racist, like, you're totally, like, the racism of your racismness is, like, coming through because, like, of all the racism. You know what I mean? Thank you, uh, Riley Roberts, boyfriend of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, for explaining that racism is a thing that you can do even if you're not being racist or don't want to be racist, so it's up to people like Riley Roberts to explain what racism really is. Keep in mind that there has been a shifting of definitions in recent years by the left so that now, you know, white supremacy is not something that... It used to be white supremacist was a person who, uh, you know, has a, a neo-Nazi tattoo scrawled on their forehead and is advocating for race war. That's like a very bad, immoral, unethical, stupid person. But that that was what we used to think of as a white supremacist. It was an evil person. Now white supremacy is somebody, oh, they'll, they'll say you're a white supremacist or you're engaged in white supremacy if you just say, hey, how about we get rid of uh, race-conscious admissions for universities because everybody should be treated as an individual. <gasps> That's perpetuating white supremacy, they will say. Because, like, white supremacy is, like, is, like, when, like, there's, like, a supremacy of, like, the white supremacy. And, like, I'm just, like, here with, like, AOC to tell you that, like, is so much better if, like, you're not doing, like, the white supremacist stuff, even if you don't know you're doing that stuff. Totally. I, I don't know. I don't know how. I mean, I, I guess it makes perfect sense because then again, AOC over the weekend did say that, uh, <laughs> do we have her saying who her favorite uh, who her favorite economist is? Uh, we oh we do. Can we can <laughs> play that clip, Mark? It's funny you ask this because I was just reading today about how Milton Keynes, a famous uh, economist back in the day, predicted that by 2030 U.S. GDP would grow six to eight times what it is, which would allow for everyday people to work 15 hours a week. Milton Keynes, he's my favorite too. Maybe she means John Maynard Keynes and. Uh, Maybe she also means Milton Friedman, <laughs> which she mixed up. She's an economics major, folks. She has a degree in economics, sir. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. You have- 
have to own up to the facts. And it's important to own up to the facts about how race has totally permeated our criminal justice system. You know, for the exact same crime, study after study now shows that African Americans are more likely than whites to be detained, to be arrested, to be taken to trial, to be wrongfully convicted, and to receive harsher sentences. We need to rework our criminal justice system from the very front end on what we make illegal all the way through the system and how we help people come back into the community. But we cannot just say that criminal justice is the only time we want to talk about race specifically. We need to start having race-conscious laws. Race-conscious laws, Elizabeth Warren says. What does that mean? By the way, we already do have race-conscious laws in some places, in some respects. Uh, we have affirmative action, as we know. We have preferred uh, minority contracting at the federal government level. Uh, we have the system for universities and colleges, particularly used by private universities and colleges, of the holistic approach where somehow Harvard, for example, has the same number of uh, you know Latino admitted students, the same number of black admitted students, year in, year out, and it's just just the way that it is. They, 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 they never, t there's no quotas, there's no quotas, but the number is basically the same, and the number is exactly what they seem to think the number should be. But they tell us it's a, it's a holistic approach, a diverse, a, a mosaic of different skills and talents in these classes, and, and that means that also you need to have a certain percentage of people of certain skin colors, but you can't tell us what that percentage is is it a reflection of the overall population, which I believe African-Americans are, I think, 12 to 14 percent of the U.S. population. Latinos are more in the 20 plus percent category now. And so is, is that the way that these classes have to? Oh, no, it's, it's not. But it's just left open to interpretation because quotas are not OK under law and racial discrimination is not OK. But a holistic approach in universities and colleges, this affirmative action uh component of the university admissions process, that's considered okay for now. Of course, Asian Americans have sued, a group of Asian American students have sued Harvard University and said, so why do we exactly get, uh, you know, the, the why, do, why do we get the short end of the stick here? Why are we the ones who are left out of this and discriminated against? You know, it's one thing, it's one thing to discriminate against uh, people who are, are white in this country in admissions and such. That, that's considered completely okay and acceptable. But if you're discriminating, it's discriminating against Asian Americans, one would ask the question, why? Oh, because they do too well in university admissions unless you discriminate against them. Well, that doesn't seem fair, does it? Well, that is where we are. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, though, gave you a perfect encapsulation of elite, uh, of an elite liberal willing to just undermine the entire U.S. justice system and just say the whole thing. She says the whole thing, top to bottom, is racist. It's just all racist. Okay. Um, what does she recommend we do about that? Let's even skip over whether the whole thing is racist. Um, you know, you have here in New York City a population in prison. This is just a statistic. This is just a fact. The primary prison for New York City is called Rikers Island, and it is uh, about 90 percent. I think it ranges from 88 to 92 percent, depending on the year. But it's about 90 percent uh, black and Latino 
people, uh, men incarcerated in uh, Rikers Island, about 90 percent. So if the system is uh, when when she says the system is racist, is she saying that those people incarcerated in Rikers, that a, a huge proportion of them are innocent? Is that when she says race conscious laws, what, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that people from certain ethnicities should be treated differently in the eyes of the law and perhaps treated more positively in the eyes of a law? Like, you know, if, if you come from an underserved, uh, impoverished minority community, you get less of a prison sentence than if you I would want to ask Elizabeth Warren, what does she think she means here? What, what does a race conscious law? Because if you really look into our history, race conscious laws are terrible. Right. Race conscious law, starting with slavery and treating human beings as property, a great moral stain on this country that we are still working to to uh, come to grips with fully and to move beyond as, as a society. But then to Reconstruction and Jim Crow and segregation, those are all race conscious laws, of course, evil race conscious laws that treat people as less than Elizabeth Warren really seems to think that the answer that that. Equality, which is the obsession of the liberal mind today. You know, these libs are obsessed with creating equality. She thinks the route to equality would be through creating unequal laws that benefit uh, certain minorities and other people not in those specified categories have different treatment under the law. And she thinks that that's that's the way to, to make things more equal. I am reminded of the. Timeless words. I believe it was Justice. Uh, it was Justice Alito. I don't think. I don't think this one was actually Justice Scalia, though. It certainly sounds like something he could have said. I think it was Justice Alito who said, "The best way to stop discriminating by race is to stop discriminating by race." Just as with, we see with with criminal justice and law enforcement, liberals learn the wrong lessons. We've already run. We've already run these experiments. The law treating people differently because of the color of their skin, in meaning explicitly saying, well, certain people get certain things because of their skin, other people get other things because of their skin, is wrong. It is immoral. It leads to immoral outcome. It, it is wrong in principle, and it is wrong in effect. We've, all, we've been through this. We've learned this as a society. But liberals, in a combination of white liberal guilt, which is very powerful, uh, white liberals can get other white liberals to do whatever they want using this this white liberal guilt tool it seems so much of the time oh you know you must you must come along with our policies or else you are clearly one of the bad white people who is still racist even though they're they don't think of or treat people of different races differently you're still racist because you're part of systemic and institutional racism that's the way they get around this so just by existing in the system, you now are no longer responsible for just your own conduct. Are you a good person? Do you treat people in a way that is blind to their race? You just treat everyone like a human being. That's the that's the conservative ideal. Every person you meet, every person you deal with, every person you see, you think of first and foremost just as another person. And now to borrow from Martin Luther King, you want to judge judge them by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. That is the that is the essence of the conservative approach. Liberals like Elizabeth Warren, who, by the way, is a huge phony. Oh, do we do we think Elizabeth Warren lives in like a struggling neighborhood where there are, you know, too, too many, too many, uh, you know, liquor stores and and too many boarded up shops and homes. And she's, you know, she's connecting with the people. 
Of course not. I'm sure Elizabeth Warren lives in a Victorian mansion in Cambridge. I don't even know that, but I'm guessing that that's, you know, she lives in a beautiful home, probably right near Harvard, and wants to lecture the rest of the country on systemic racism. Uh, has no idea what she's talking about and, and won't be pressed on this by liberals. Race conscious laws. What does that mean? Uh, because ultimately she has to answer the question of, I mean, that I would pose about uh, about Rikers Island prison here in New York City. Are the people in that prison, did they break the law? And if so, should they be punished? And if you think they didn't break the law, I'd like to know why you think they're in prison. I'm not saying that innocent people don't go to jail. Of course they do. I think it is a very, very a small percentage of people who are incarcerated. A small percentage of people who are incarcerated didn't didn't break the law, right? Because there's just too much to do and too many people that are breaking the laws that, that law enforcement isn't just going around at random and grabbing people and saying, oh, we're going to, you know, we, we, we think we can get you on a fake weapons charge, so we'll just throw you in prison. But this is what I mean by top-down... Uh, top-down rhetoric from liberals that affects law enforcement and just affects criminal justice in a very negative way. Because what you what you end up hearing, if you are, let's say, a, a minority living in a neighborhood where there's a lot of crime and, and you want someone to do something about it, you're being told by Elizabeth Warren. The Elizabeth Warrens of the Democratic Party are going to tell you that the cops are not the answer. The cops aren't there to help you. You know who's really there to help you? The 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 Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice under a Democrat president, they're really going to clean things up in your neighborhood. Yeah, that's not just all politics. They're, they're, they're the ones that are really going to keep you safe and make sure that you know your grandma can get home from the grocery store without being bashed over the head with a pipe. Sure, it's the D.C. bureaucrats. They're going to make sure that you're okay. I mean, this is, non, this is nonsense. Elizabeth Warren on, on criminal justice is an entirely unserious person. I think one of the great one of the great swindles that Elizabeth Warren has pulled off. Forget about the fact that she's a fake Native American, uh, which still to this day is is a stunning. I mean, you know, she this was this is something uh, similar to you know Rachel Dolezal, if you remember, the person who was white but was the head of the NAACP chapter, and I think it was Wash in a part of Washington State, and then eventually people said, wait a second, but you're white. She's like, no, I identify as black. And there was all this outrage, but the left wasn't really sure how to handle that. Elizabeth Warren identified falsely as a Native American for personal advantage for how long? And that is not really the greatest fraud in some ways that she has perpetuated against the American people. I think the greatest fraud is her the, the pretense that she is knowledgeable and she is an intellectual. I think she is neither of those things. She is neither. She does not speak with fluency or intelligence on issues like law enforcement. She says exactly what the readership of the Huffington Post and the viewership of CNN wants to hear her say. That's not the same thing as expertise, and it's certainly not the same thing as experience or seriousness. Well, I, I just think that, you know, we need, we need race-conscious laws because the criminal justice system, every study, everybody—that's just not—that's not true. She should know that that's not true. A study that I've even cited before. I mean, a, a few of the the big liberal, oh, gosh, look at how racist everybody is studies. are very interesting. One of them is that the the uh, for a while on, on the New Jersey Turnpike, there was this belief that because a disproportionate number of uh, African-Americans were pulled over for speeding and 
speeding at, at particularly very high and very dangerous. You know, it's one thing to speed 15 miles an hour. If you're going 30 miles an hour of the limit, if you have to stop or if you have any kind of, you know, if you have a tire blowout or something, if, you know, if you're going 100 miles an hour, 110 miles an hour, it's a lot more dangerous than somebody who's going 75 and a 65, right? But particularly a number, you know, African-Americans over the, over the course of this study were pulled over disproportionately on the New Jersey Turnpike, which is I-95, one of the most Producer Mark, it's one of the most, I think it's the most trafficked corridor of the most trafficked highway in the country, okay? So, you know, this was a big study they did, and, and no one ever stopped to think, because initially it was, oh, gosh, the cops are so racist. The cops are pulling over, are pulling over uh, black people on the New Jersey Turnpike out of racism. Well, just start with the logic of this. The, 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 the police, someone's driving 70, 80 miles an hour. The cops are taking, they're getting a hit. Off, off of the vehicle, and it's it's not actually that easy when you've got a lot of cars coming along to to tell the ethnicity of the driver, okay? Especially, by the way, they're often doing this at night. Does anyone ever think about that? It's not that easy to see people driving 80 miles an hour down a highway with other cars around them, uh, you know, at night. Uh, the, the conditions are not conducive to the kind of discrimination that was initially being alleged. And then they just they actually did a study and they set up they said they weren't arresting people, but they did a study. And they set up cameras and, and speed guns to see. And th- there there were a disproportionate number over the course of the study of African-American drivers who were driving extremely fast and, and well beyond the speed limit. I have no idea why that is. I would not pretend to be able to tell you what was going on. Maybe that was just the, the way the numbers went at that time. But it wasn't because there were a bunch of racist cops who were like, let's just give, let's only give speeding tickets to African-American drivers in the New Jersey Turnpike. It was all a lie. It was a lie. Why, why is Rikers Island 90% black and Hispanic? I, I, if you're asking me about the sociological reasons, history of systemic racism, okay, that's, that's a big and, and worthwhile conversation. But it sounds like Elizabeth Warren thinks that those people actually didn't break the law. And if that's the case, I would like to know individually, okay, who's in there who's innocent? Let's get them out right away. But if people are breaking the law, if someone robs someone, I don't care what their skin color is. I don't care what their ethnicity is. They should go to prison for that. Right. If someone burglarizes someone's home, it does not matter what their skin color is. They should go to prison. It's a violation of law. But Elizabeth Warren, again, a demagogue. An unserious demagogue posing as an intellectual, desperate to seem like the more woke of the far-left candidates, which now includes, of course, Bernie Sanders. But she has no answers. She has no solutions. And one thing is for sure, if we listened to her, things would only get worse when it comes to criminal justice. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. So how do you explain the performance in Iowa? And why should the voters believe that you can win the national election? It's a good question. Number one, I was a Democratic caucus. You ever been to a caucus? No, you haven't. You're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. You said you were, but you're, you're, now you got to be honest. I'm going to be honest with you. You're a Democrat frontrunner, everybody, <laughs> at least according to the polls. You're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. What? You're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. Yeah, what the heck is that? It turns out I think it's a reference to a John Wayne movie, and I believe, in fact, a Native American character refers to John Wayne that way. Uh, so I, I did do a little bit of due diligence, a little bit of research to figure this one out. But 
wow. I mean, Mr. Magoo, a.k.a. Joe Biden, he he just keeps showing you more and more of why he's a third-rate politician with a fourth-tier intellect. No one, no one in the Democratic establishment seems to want to accept this reality that is so apparent to the rest of us who are not invested, not just psychologically, but also perhaps professionally invested in Bidenism. You know, there are a lot of people out there that want to see Biden win and they want to see Biden win for their own reasons. And those reasons have nothing to do with what's best for the country or anything else. They want to see Biden win because the Hillary apparatus will quickly attach to Joe Biden and, and also some former Obama administration folks, I'm sure, also feel like they could probably get ahead professionally in a Biden administration. I will say that there was one worthwhile uh, Democrat on Democrat attack ad over the weekend. It's kind of fun. Um, here's the here's the Biden camp slamming Mayor Pete, who really hasn't done very much. And uh, it's like he's like applying for the uh, applying for the entry level job of president, which is not how we want things. Play clip one. Barack Obama called Joe Biden the best vice president America's ever had. But Pete Buttigieg doesn't think much of the vice president's record. Let's compare. When President Obama called on him, Joe Biden helped lead the passage of the Affordable Care Act, which gave health care to 20 million people. And when park goers called on Pete Buttigieg, he installed decorative lights under bridges, giving citizens of South Bend colorfully illuminated rivers. Both Vice President Biden and former Mayor Buttigieg have taken on tough fights. Under threat of a nuclear Iran, Joe Biden helped to negotiate the Iran deal. And under threat of disappearing pets, Buttigieg negotiated lighter licensing regulations on pet chip scanners. Both Vice President Biden and former Mayor Pete have helped shape our economy. Joe Biden helped save the auto industry, which revitalized the economy of the Midwest and led the passage and implementation of the Recovery Act, saving our economy from a depression. Pete Buttigieg revitalized the sidewalks of downtown town south bend by laying out decorative brick <laughs> laying out decorative brick let's dig into this a little bit thanks for listening to the bus sex and show podcast remember to subscribe on apple podcast the iHeartRadio radio app or wherever you get your podcasts now i will tell you it was an effective ad that we played for you uh, there of of biden versus buddha judge but keep in mind that biden was just a bystander for all of that Biden didn't really do any of that. It wasn't Biden's idea. And Buttigieg, yeah, he's the mayor of a pretty small, of the third largest city in Indiana, which is not a particularly large state. Love my peeps out at Fort Wayne. Whoa, whoa. One of our great heritage stations in the state of Indiana. Give you guys all a high, and gals, all a high five. But, uh, you know, and by the way, why aren't we, you know, we got to get on in South Bend. They need, they need the Buck Sexton show in South Bend. I got to find out who's who's running the stations over there. But, you know, South Bend is not really what you think is a stepping stone to the presidency, being the mayor of it. It is not the stepping stone to the presidency. Um, and yet Mayor Pete thinks that, you know, he should just be the guy. I mean, look, Barack Obama didn't have a long, a long career in national level politics. He was a you know, one term senator, but at least he had been a senator, had been a state senator. You know, I mean, you, you could kind of see you know, that Buttigieg clearly wants to be. A, an inspiring figure to the left the way that Barack Obama was. Buttigieg would be. He'd be the first uh, first gay American president in history. So there's that groundbreaking historical first component that liberals will be clearly, and I think a lot of Americans would be very, uh, you know, very excited about. The same way that Americans, even if you didn't, you know, if you weren't an Obama voter, 
that you could you could not deny. And I think we all embrace the historical truth and the historical breakthrough of the first black president. I mean, that is a good that alone is a good thing. I just wish, you know, we could have had the first black president be somebody a, 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 more more along the lines of, say, uh, you know, Supreme Court Justice Thomas or you know, Dr. Ben Carson, but still great to have the first black president. No question. No question about it. Um, you know, this is oh, by the way, we should probably have the, uh, the speaking of Clarence Thomas, there's a Clarence Thomas movie out there. Producer Mark, we'll, we'll maybe get them on uh, Friday and talk to us, talk about the movie. I like Fridays. I like to do a little bit of books and movies and things like that sometimes. Got to keep you all on your toes. Can't just be all this political science stuff all the time. Uh, but, you know, Mayor Pete doesn't have a record as a politician to run on. There was also a very interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend that does something you rarely see. And it is kind of calling out Mayor Pete for, OK, yeah, he served in the military. Great. But, you know, they're like, OK, well, what did he really do in the military? What did he what did he really do in the military? And. You know, they said he became he didn't go through officer candidate school the way that is standard. It was kind of a backdoor way of becoming a, a army or becoming a reserve officer in the Navy. And he went to Afghanistan for four or five months. And that was his only deployment. And look, I, I know where Mayor Pete was because I, I spent some time in the same place. I mean, he was in he was in Kabul on a very large military base. That has uh, multiple very nice coffee shops and great food, and uh, you know lots of DVDs and things to watch and MWRs and, and look, I, I'm, I, I think we've all said thank you, Mayor Pete, for your service. Uh, the way that he wields it a little bit though, sometimes starts to edge up against. All right, but were you, you know, I, I always tell you guys in all honesty that I carried weapons in two war zones and I was never in combat. So let's be very, you know, I was never in combat. I was a, a civilian CIA officer, a CIA analyst who was trying to help. The, I was trying to help the warfighter. I was not a warfighter. Always. And it's something I'm very clear with all of you about because I would never want that to seem like I was uh, overstepping or, or outstepping my bounds because I know the guys. And I would see them coming back from outside the wire after their convoy would get hit. I remember spending time with some members of uh, a special forces group after they had been hit with a suicide bomber. And talking to them and, and hanging out with them after they had these bandages on from some of the ball bearings that had hit them while they were trying to take down an HVT. Those are war fighters. Those are war fighters. Now, I, I know and I, I know that we usually, don't, we, you know, we, we just thank everyone for their service because it is service to your country. You know, if you, if you swear the oath and you put on the uniform, you go into these combat zones and you're, you're serving your country in some capacity, that's something that we are all thankful for. But you don't want to be the guy that was basically drinking lattes in an air-conditioned room, as CIA analysts tend to be, by the way, so, you know, I know of what I speak. You don't want to be the guy drinking lattes in an air-conditioned room who is uh, then pretending to have been, like, out there alongside Rambo, you know, get, you know getting it done in, in, the, in the throes of battle, you know, in the, in the heat of, of warfare and combat. And that's why when Mayor Pete says things like, I don't need lessons and courage from you to Beto O'Rourke, you know, this Wall Street Journal article was saying, you know, Mayor Pete, slow your roll a little bit, all right? Because there have been a few million Americans have gone and served in, in the war zones, and not all of them run around acting like that means that nobody else can ever, you know, speak with the same authority about military or national security issues, and more than that, that, you know, their personal bravery needs to be constantly 
And one thing that I've always seen too, I mean, the the guys that are out, the guys that are the, the are the warfighter, and that's how I'll distinguish this: combat veterans. Combat is different from war zone service. I served in a war zone. I'm not a combat veteran, and I never served in the military. I served the CIA, right? But combat veterans that I come across tend to be much more. They tend to be more um, humble, and and they they're not flexing. They don't talk some big game about oh, I'm a combat veteran and nobody else, because they understand how how powerful and how um, just changing in, in your perspective it is to have been out there and to risk your life and to have seen people on our side get hit, seen people on our side get killed in combat. And there's just, there's just a whole different perspective that they have, a whole different understanding of, of warfare. And Mayor Pete is not one of them, not even close. So that's what the Wall Street Journal is pointing out, that he does this whole thing about, you know, let me tell you, I'm, I'm you know, the, a guy who's out there and as somebody who is, and he talks about how, you know, he carried a weapon of war and we, they shouldn't be on our streets. It's another Democrat talking point. Yeah, I carried a, you know, I carried a weapon of war too, dude. Like, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't in combat. Let, let's slow your roll a little bit. Slow your roll a little bit. Enough is enough. Um, and they really were comparing it to John Kerry, who, it always seemed like he went to Vietnam as a springboard into a political career, which is and, and was very transparent about it. You know, so we, we want people who have served to run for office. We want people who understand firsthand what war is to be making those decisions, to be involved in those decisions about sending young men and women off to war for this country. Uh, but we don't want it to seem opportunistic, which in the case of John Kerry, who showed up in Vietnam with a video camera. Uh, at a time when you know now everyone carries cameras, I mean that's but at a time when like that was a real, that was unusual. Uh, he wanted to make sure he could document his his exploits there, and then as soon as he came back, he threw his fellow soldiers under the bus and was throwing his medals over the wall and did this whole, you know, this is the way the Democratic Party's going, trashing our soldiers and their efforts in Vietnam. So he just latched himself onto that. You know, I got to tell you, I mean, they, the Democrats are still very. Surly, they're still very angry about what they call the swift boating of John Kerry. Uh, it's a pretty remarkable thing to have guys that you served in combat with, and have so many of them come out and say you're unfit and you know you're not some you're not somebody of honor, which is what the swift boat veterans were saying about John Kerry. So it was interesting to see you know Mayor Pete get that get that analysis, uh, get that heat really from the Wall Street Journal over the weekend because you rarely see. Uh, people go there. And I will just say that with with liberals in particular, I've come across this so many times where you have people that you know, the, the liberals will put forward somebody as a, well, this is the this is a person who's a veteran. Therefore, conservatives can't attack them on this or that issue. And, you know, they're they're often ones that are very, you know, the, the, the libs seem to have no problem putting people forward who were like uh, lieutenant colonels in the Air Force that never left the continental United States. But how dare you, you know, challenge them on on Syria or something? And I sit here, I go, everybody, you know, some of the most important advice I ever got before I went uh, went to Iraq the first time. I was in Iraq twice. Most important advice I ever got was from a long time, long time Intel community guy who said to me, just know your role, know who you are, know why you're there, know your role. You're not, you know, you're not, you're not a door kicker. You're not, you're not doing the war fighting part of this. You're trying to help those guys essentially find the bad guys, do what you can to assist them. So they take out the bad guys and they come home alive, but you're assisting. You're not, you're not on the, you're not the tip of the spear. Know your role. 
Very important distinction. And I think you see among some of these Democrats running for office, they, they start to forget a little bit that, you know, there's a difference between being, uh, you know, being an army ranger uh, out at a, at a combat outpost in, you know, the Korangal Valley and flying into, you know, Kabul and spending a few months on a military base there. Where Look, there are still risks. They're still taking direct fire. There's still people that show up, uh, you know, suicide bombers will come to the front gates. And I mean, these things happen even in these big bases and there are insider attacks and you're serving and you're separated from your country. I'm not, you know, I, I'm well aware because I, I did this part of it. I'm, I'm well aware of how of how it's not, you know, it's never a war zone's a war zone. But, you know, you start going around calling people chicken, you know, chicken hawks or calling people cowards in a political race because, you know, they didn't serve, which Mayor Pete loves to say about the current commander in chief, too. He's always calling out his lack of personal courage. Um, you know, it, it, it starts to feel a little bit a little bit too much. And it's fair to ask, OK, well, how many how many people have been combat veterans and and why are they less sticking their chest out about this? than a guy who was an officer on a big military base in a foreign country for less than a year and now is telling everybody about how he's like the, you know, the next the next great veteran to be the president of the United States. You know, it's I think you all see the distinction I'm making here. I hope I've, and I know we got a lot of veterans, including combat veterans uh, who listen to the show. In fact, I will tell you my absolute favorite. And I hope they're listening to this. My absolute favorite thing of, of all the people, hundreds and hundreds of people that came up to me at the Politicon event in Nashville this past year. My absolute favorite thing was when somebody from the Special Forces community came up and he had just come back. He had actually been over there in the in the stuff. And he came back and he had his wife. He had a beautiful family, beautiful wife and kids. He came up to me and he just said, hey, man, I really love listening to your show and you really get it and you get it right. And the guys in my Humvee, when we were out there on the Iraq-Syria border. We, we always listen to you and we appreciate it. Highest honor I can be paid as a host doing this show. So to all the uh, active and former veterans and, and, and combat veterans, thank you so much for listening. And I hope I always speak, speak correctly and truthfully about all these issues that affect you all. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. We run every other election in this country in the traditional fashion. In other words, you know, the person who gets the most votes gets to win the election. And when you're running for governor of a state of any size, you go to the big cities and you go to the small towns. We don't run governor's races with some electoral college system where certain counties count more than certain other counties. Uh, and if you want to earn that office, you campaign everywhere. I think the same is true for the country. And at the end of the day, it's not clear to me why uh, a rancher in Texas should uh, uh, not count because they're in a state that's overwhelmingly conservative uh, or somebody living in, in Brooklyn shouldn't count because uh, their community is overwhelmingly uh, liberal or that my city, a mid-sized city in the industrial Midwest, doesn't have much of a voice because I'm part of a state that's not considered a swing state. It, it doesn't even benefit small states. It just benefits some states. And at the end of the day, I think it's fair for everybody's vote to count the exact same like we do in every other election that we run in this country. See, Mayor Pete knows more than the founding fathers about the system of government we have. Uh, calls now for this this more direct democracy approach. Let's uh, abolish the Electoral College, abolish the Senate. These are things you hear from libs because they don't get their way. They don't understand that we have these 
longstanding notions of federalism, of states, of the administration of government at different levels, localized government, checks and balances on government, that this complicated system has functioned so well for so long because of the genius behind it. And now you get people who think they're geniuses today on the left who come along and what do they want to do? They want to dismantle it. They want to get rid of the system that has been so incredible for so long. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it has endured. And we are the far and away, the richest, safest, freest, best place in the world of our size. When you look at our influence, I mean, America is incredible. And people say, oh, Buck, but what about Finland? All right, they've got like 5 million people. Or let's, I don't even know if it's 5. It might be like 2 or 3 million. It might be smaller than that. It's not a very big place. It doesn't really count. In terms of the great sweep of history, I love my Finnish brothers and sisters too. I've actually got some, I've actually got a couple of Finnish friends. They're very nice. They speak like eight languages. They're, uh, they're very respectful. Um, anyway, I, I just think this is this is classic Mayor Pete here, uh, thinking that this is a way to appeal to the Democrat electorate. They they openly advocate for abolishing key aspects of our governmental system. I mean, they just say, oh, we should get rid of this or, oh, we should get rid of that. And then, you know, in the next breath, I'll turn around and say, Trump and the Republicans are undermining the sacred aspects of our democracy. But you guys are the ones that want to abolish the Senate, abolish the Electoral College, stack the Supreme Court from nine to whatever, you know, whatever it is, court packing so that you can get your way on the Supreme Court. Uh, abolish ICE, abolish borders. You know, they just want to get rid of all these different aspects of government and sovereignty, and we're supposed to think that they know what they're doing. But I will give Mayor Pete credit for this. Unlike MSNBC's heralded uh, up-and-coming anchor Katie Turr, it is clear that Mayor Pete does, in fact, understand the difference between, say, the Senate and the House. This was a great conversation on MSNBC that got some attention over the weekend. And I give a shout out to Beckett Adams, the Washington Examiner. He wrote a column called Katie Turr, the anchor who knows too little, I think it was called, which was really funny. He just pulled together all the really, really dumb, dumb things that she says on air and and with with frequency. That shows a deep ignorance. She didn't misspeak on something. Uh, she, She has an ignorance of things, political things, even though it is her job to speak to the American people about mostly political issues. And here you get a sense of how well she understands gerrymandering because she's worried about how gerrymandering will affect the Senate. Play clip six, producer Mark. Brett Kavanaugh was appointed by a president who lost the popular vote, and he was confirmed by a Senate which represented less than half of the yeah. country, right? I mean, that's, that is a stark example, and it's one that Mitch McConnell has used repeatedly <laughs> to act in contrast to the House. It's a bit of a kerfuffle. It is. It is. It's a bit. It's a bit of a conundrum. <laughs> so, um, what is the what's the resolution to that? Is is gerrymandering something that would help um, improve the situation? Is how does how does that sort of divide promote consensus in the Senate or even in the House? Well, I mean, they're, they're the only resolution. Gerrymanders not going to do anything because in the Senate we're talking about states, right? Yeah. We can't gerrymander states. It's a helpful reminder there for. MSNBC anchor Katie Turr, you know, what what gerrymandering, can that fix things, you know, in the Senate? No, because the Senate does not involve any gerrymandering because it's a statewide race. Because there are two senators per state, Katie Turr, two per state. We have 100 senators, two per state, 50 states. Everyone in that state gets to vote when that senator's uh, when that senator is up for either reelection or there's a there's a, a challenge to the incumbent. That's how it goes. Just just in case she's not aware, because it seems like she's not.
Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. No, I wasn't surprised, uh, but uh, I think it's just a reality. I mean, look, I'm not putting the label on Bernie. Bernie calls himself a democratic socialist. Now, you've been around, George, as much as anybody. You're going to win with that label? You're going to help somebody in Florida win with the label democratic socialist? Because everybody's going to go all the way down the line. That's just going to happen. You can win in North Carolina. You can win in Pennsylvania. You're going to win in those states in the Midwest. It's not, I'm not, I didn't put the label on Bernie. Bernie calls himself a democratic socialist. So you think flat out Democrats can't defeat Trump if they have to defend socialism? I think it's going to be incredibly more difficult. I'm not going to say, look, if I don't get the nomination and Bernie gets it, I'm going to work like hell for him. But I tell you what, it's a bigger uphill climb running as a senator or a congressperson or as a governor on a ticket that calls itself a democratic socialist ticket. I think Biden's right about that, but the Democrats seem to want to, they want to take this all the way. They want to see this thing through. Are they going to run a socialist? We'll find out a little bit more about the likelihood of it after the uh, New Hampshire primary. By the way, Trump tonight is doing a rally in New Hampshire which is just great. I mean, Trump should just go every, everywhere that the Democrats are doing any kind of election contest where there's any possibility of him of him winning the state. I mean, I'm not sure. Well, maybe, I think he should do it everywhere, or at least as much as the president has time for. He's got other things. He's got a country to run. He's got keeping America great top of the agenda. But I'd say he goes to New Hampshire tonight, and you'll have yet another time when you have this figure who is running on a record that is really unassailable for any normal person. His record is incredible at this point. I mean, the country's doing really, really well. Haven't been hit with a huge mass casualty terror attack, you know, haven't had a massive plunge in the stock market, aren't sending 100,000 soldiers into a war zone, losing, you know, uh, 50 to 100 people a month in combat. I mean, although we did just lose two soldiers in Afghanistan in an insider attack, two special forces soldiers. You know, I, I guess I guess the the establishment, the national security establishment just figures we're, we're going to have one of those guys, I believe, with special forces soldiers who was killed in action was on his 10th deployment. I suppose now we're just going to accept that there will be a very small percentage of the American population that serves in the military that just they're going to spend like 30 years of their life cycling through Afghanistan for what exactly at this point? I mean, to keep the Taliban from rising to power, but. We, do we really think we're going to be able to do that with the current level of force we have in that country? I, and I think that's I think we should just bring them home. I think I think we're done. And we should tell the Taliban, you guys better. You know, we we have a lot of ways of getting getting to you. If you think that you're going to step out of line, you're going to you know do things you've done in the past. Uh, and we're not coming back and trying to rebuild and stabilize your areas. We're just going to find every every Taliban bad guy with whatever we can, wherever we can and take them out. And we're not going to play fair. We're not going to we're not going to try to, you know, have some sit down with you again. You know, the Taliban, you're just going to you're just going to get all the full wrath and fury of the United States technological and military superiority. You know, I think that's a better option at this point. But people think that we should just stay in Afghanistan. They're now there's stay in Afghanistan forever really is the policy. I just want to be clear on that. Got to keep, you know, seven, eight, ten thousand U.S. soldiers there just cycling through forever. In a war zone, in a place we're going to keep taking casualties. That's the plan. At a cost, by the way, to the taxpayer of 
I don't know, who knows when it's all said and done. It's already been, you know, the wars have already cost a trillion dollars plus. It'll already be, it'll be hundreds of billions of dollars spent in Afghanistan just on reconstruction. And the country is not in much better shape now than it was that. But anyway, tr- Trump is running on his record and he is, when he's compared to the Democrats that want to take his job, it's really, it's really pretty amazing. You see that this is a guy who is able to say to any American, hey, look what I've done. Look at how much better look at how much better things are going now at every poll and every metric. And the Democrats come forward and they they say that he's he's terrible and that they want to be they want to bring socialism. They want to bring socialism to this country even more than it already. But we already have some socialism here. But they want they want to up the socialism. That's the plan. Here is uh, Bernie Sanders. I mean, Biden is correct when he says that Bernie is going to run as a socialist. He, he very much is going to run as a socialist. And uh, here is what here is what uh, Bernie says about how the American pe- uh, American people feel about it. Play clip 11. Well, the truth is that our agenda is precisely the agenda that the overwhelming majority of the American people want. We're going to grow the voter turnout in Iowa where the turnout was not as high as I wanted it to be. Among young people, people under 29 years of age, we increased the voter turnout by some 33 percent. It's a huge voter turnout. And we do that all over the country. I think you're going to see incredible gains for down-ballot Democrats. Look, at the end of the day, the American people want to raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. They want to make public colleges and universities tuition-free and cancel student debt by a modest tax on Wall Street speculation. The American people understand health care is a human right, not a privilege. The function of health care is not to make $100 billion for the drug companies and the insurance companies. The American people understand we have got to deal with the existential threat of climate change. Our agenda is the agenda of working class and middle class Americans. He's not correct, I hope. (laughs) I mean, I I can't really say until we have a national election. I mean, I'd like to think that the American people understand that the promises of socialism are, that they are always doomed to disappoint, that it it will never work the way they say it will work. That he says that climate change is an existential threat. That should be terrifying to you, that, that anyone believes that still. I mean, I tweeted out today, and I stand by this, that the moral and intelligent thing to do would be the— we spend billions and billions of dollars on climate change research as well as uh, sending money to third-world countries to help them mitigate the effects of climate change. It's essentially, it's just world welfare. We're just sending—your your money is going to different countries all over the world— and they say it's for addressing climate change. It's just global welfare. It's just global socialism. That's why they love the Green New Deal. They love all this climate change stuff so much because it it is a it is a socialism a socialism moment. And it's when you start to hear the socialists come out and tell you what they really want, which is for us to pay for the rest of the world to develop. You are going to go to work, and your labor will receive a certain amount of money, and you will have to give a huge portion of that money back to a government that's going to be giving that money to other countries to ostensibly give to their people so that they can be better off and you know live in a bigger house and have better food and whatever it may be. That's that's ultimately what the goal of many of these socialists and as we know, I mean we America's a very rich country, but we're not like eight we're sorry, I hate when people say we're not like, excuse me, um, but we're we're not in a position to make the rest of the world rich just by sending them checks. There's actually too many people in the rest of the world. We, we're, we're not that wealthy as a country. Uh, 
but there is a there is a real socialism surge going on right now. And I, I really do want I want I'm just going to say it. I want Bernie Sanders to be the Democrat nominee. I want him to. I want him to, because I think the country needs to have a, a real choice of socialism or prosperity, capitalism, freedom and individual rights and contracts and law. And, you know, I, I think that it would be best if we really had this out, that this is the election that America should have. Trump versus Bernie, capitalism versus socialism. So in that respect, I'm, I'm rooting for Bernie in the Democrat primary at this point, as much as I could root for any Democrat, because I, wa- I want him to be the one that goes up against Trump. I think that there's a possibility if he goes up against Trump that I, I mean, I haven't counted specifically in the states, but I think we're talking a Mondale, st- a Mondale style landslide for Trump against Bernie. I think that that's really possible because uh, I, I don't believe that a socialist is going to win in any in any purple state. And I think that the Democrats will vote for any Democrat over they'll vote for any person over Trump. Um, but we want to have this this debate, this discussion now as a country, um, because now, you know, the, the, these are the final policy debates before we are a full on socialist country. Do we want you? Do we want health care run by the government for everyone, for every American man, woman? By the way, the rich will always have separate health care that they'll pay for and. The rich will always have an out. The, the actually rich. It's the working class, the middle class. They're the ones that are going to have crap government-sponsored health care that's far too expensive. That's a massive drag on the private economy and makes us all poorer over the long run. That, that's what will really happen. The rich will just say, you know, they'll set up. I mean, if you're worth a billion dollars, you fly in doctors from wherever you need to, to give you whatever you need, right? It doesn't matter. But it was interesting that there was this movie, American Factor. We're going to transition to a little bit of Oscars talk. You notice how I haven't spent much time in the Oscars, but there was some there was some pretty entertaining stuff and some pretty groan-inducing stuff, too. I watched a little bit of the Oscars. I didn't watch all of it last time. I watched a little bit of it. But American Factory is a movie uh, that talk, that deals with you know factories and, and outsourcing. I haven't seen it, so I don't know much about it. But uh, Julia Reichert is involved with this movie. Was she the director, producer, Mark? Do we know? Is that right? Yeah, director of American Factory. And uh, she decided to give, uh, you know, a full on, uh, you know, commie high five last night at the Oscars with over a billion people watching is what they estimate. Please play clip 31. Working people have it harder and harder these days. And we believe that things will get better when workers of the world unite. Workers of the world unite. You've heard that before, right? People ask me, what should I read? If I really want to understand socialism and the left, what should I read? And I, I rattled off a bunch of books from the top of my head. The first thing you should start with is the Communist Manifesto. Read it. That, that is the blueprint. That is the, that is the primary source document of communism and socialism. Remember, the communists called themselves socialists. And in fact, in the early days of the rise of the Soviet Union, the the uh, Bolsheviks, who were fighting with the Mensheviks over who were who were the, the the true socialists were, they called themselves socialists. They called themselves socialists. So don't don't ever forget that. And Marx was a socialist. Karl Marx himself was a believer in literally the founder of, but a believer in socialism. Uh, and they would even refer to themselves as as democratic socialists too in the early days. There was always this pretense. The Bolsheviks were never popular in in Russia. And then when it became the Soviet Union, they never had a majority of the vote. They they were never elected or chosen by the people. 
They seized power by force and then and then pre uh, pretended to represent the people that they were liquidating as well as living off of at the expense of. And I know the movie Parasite won last night, best picture South Korean movie. But the true parasites in the Soviet Union were the Politburo and the Central Committee and the various uh, members of the Soviet system, Soviet apparatus, the apparatchiks, people from within the apparatus. You know, the various well-placed comrades, they were the parasites on the people of the Soviet Union, the Russians and other, and other uh, nationalities that fell under that umbrella of socialism. Workers of the World Unite, straight out of the Communist Manifesto, saying it last night at the Oscars in a room full of people worth millions, in some cases hundreds of millions of dollars, dressed in $10,000 gowns and $5,000 suits, lecturing the rest of us about the cow slavery and how milk drinking is mean. I'm not kidding. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I think that we've become very disconnected from the natural world. And many of us, what we're guilty of is an egocentric worldview. The belief that we're the center of the universe. We go into the natural world and we plunder it for its resources. We feel entitled to artificially inseminate a cow. And when she gives birth, we steal her baby. Even though her cries of anguish are unmistakable. And then we take her milk that's intended for a calf and we put it in our coffee and our cereal. And I think we fear the idea of personal change because we think that we have to sacrifice something to give something up. <laughs> the war on milk drinking, folks. And I do, I do drink some fancy milk, so I drink normal milk. But I also drink hazelnut milk these days. I drink uh, almond milk these days, which are expensive, by the way. These things, well, you know, I, I embrace my, I embrace bougie coffee. I, I have no, no uh, qualms about that. But it's pretty remarkable. Uh, here you have Joaquin Phoenix, who managed to work a whole bunch of stuff into his acceptance speech, and I will say he did a very good job in that role of of Joker. He did a very, it's a, I think it's a. Did you see end up seeing a producer Mark? What you? Think? I still haven't seen it. I don't want to talk about it. Dude, I know. Come on. Is it on demand yet? Is it, is um, it on Amazon or I something? I know Paris. I've seen, a, I think, 1917, Parasite. Those are on demand. I haven't seen Joker on demand yet. Mm. It's made a billion dollars. I don't want to pay for it. No. Yeah. But, like, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it's, it's not going to be on the like, on like HBO or anything for a, probably a long time. Yeah, so you're going to have to probably mm. rent it. You can rent it for three bucks. Oh, that's true. You know, you can well, rent it. I wouldn't buy it. You wouldn't yeah, buy it on it. Amazon, but you can rent it for three or four dollars. It's a good movie. Dude, you, uh, you will like it. So I when know. You come I would. You give us. Have you seen 1917 yet? I have not. That's still in theaters, though. I could does go does Mrs. See Mark it. just make you watch nothing but Disney Plus all the I'm time? Just, I'm very busy on the weekends. That's Funny you mentioned Disney Plus. I actually saw a uh, theater production of The Little Mermaid this weekend. Really? We had to celebrate Valentine's Day a little early. How was it? It was actually very good. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Uh, my favorite part is Les Poissons, Les Poissons. He, he, he. Yes. Ha, ha, ha. He was very good. Oh, they, they had the guy who did it. Of course they did. And I cut up the little fishes, and I pull their guts out, and yeah, the whole thing. It's the same thing as the movie, except it's on Broadway. Oh, oh, you saw the Broadway version? Yes. Oh, this was like, I thought it was like maybe community theater or something. No, 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 you saw this like was the like, real thing. I mean, it was a theater, but on Long Island. Ah, yeah. okay. Oh, a nice. traveling group. Yeah, so it was very professional, though. It was yes. well done. All yeah, right, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, I, uh, 
You know, I actually watched I watched Sleeping Beauty recently on on Disney Plus. Just I randomly? Yeah, because I never seen it before. Really? Yeah, I just want to check yeah. it out. So I checked it out. It's pretty good. This pretty is good. what I also you do was, with your free time. Yeah, hmm. I also was confused because I was thinking that there was going to be. Um, you know, sleepy, dopey, dwarfy, or whatever. You know, the seven dwarves. Yeah, uh, that's actually Snow White. Yes, I, I conflated is. Snow White and Sleeping Beauty in my head. So I was like, "Where are the seven dwarves? Why is she eating that apple?" At one, po- what point did you realize? Oh no, wait, she didn't eat the apple. She she pricked her finger on yeah. a. It's a different thing. The apple is Snow White. I the believe. apple is yeah. Snow White, right? The finger, the finger pricking is. At one point, did you realize you were watching the wrong movie? I'm like halfway through. Okay. Because I, I was, I was like, "Where are those dwarves? Damn it!" Sure. I'm expecting dwarves, seven of them, and not six, singing, yeah. seven, yeah. seven little. Dwar- yeah. Did you then watch Snow White afterwards? Uh, no, I haven't watched Snow White yet. But that's next. In, that's it, next yeah. in the queue. I can. I watched The Mandalorian through twice, so I need to stop. I need to stop. Like I've reached. It's sure. only like eight episodes, but. It's very good. I haven't you haven't watched, seen that either. I mean, we, no. we, we're going to have a producer Mark homework list. They're going to start holding you to account for this. The audience, Team Buck is going to say, producer Mark, you got to tell Mrs. Mark that you guys need to like establish movie night. There's no chance I get her to watch The Mandalorian. You don't think so? No. What she doesn't like she, Star Wars What does she like to watch? Uh, her favorite show is Teen Mom. Wow. She says it makes her feel better about herself. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. I've, I've, I don't even know what that is. It's a show on MTV about teen mothers. I remember when MTV was like really cool and had yeah, nothing no, but nothing like about music, music videos. No. Not really so much anymore. No. Well, I guess that's kind of a change that ha- that has happened now. So anyway, okay, wait. I, I got a v- vegan stuff. Now, now, if you're a vegan and you're like just you do it for health reasons or whatever, that that's cool. Uh, you, you eat whatever you want. All right, you eat whatever you want. I'm, I'm all about freedom. We can't be in the freedom hut and be dictating what you put in your mouth. That said, vegans do have a habit of being or becoming some of the most annoying people on the planet because they view their food choice not as an issue of food, but as a moral stance, which is why Joaquin Phoenix, when he's talking about cows and us separating you know, baby cows from the moms, and uh, you know, I'm sure he doesn't like that we also stun and then and then uh, bleed and then eat cows, you know, the cow slaughtering and all these things that go on. I, I got I to gotta tell you something. I just want to know if some of these people that take this more extreme vegan approach, do they, do they cry during nature movies when the lion eats the gazelle? You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. So we had Joaquin Phoenix's uh, speech. At the Oscars, and as I said, if you haven't seen Joker, I think it's very good. You'll 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 enjoy it for what it is. It is not uplifting, but it is really a character study in the descent into darkness, which is worth worth seeing in these. But also the the resentments and the the uh, the the struggle and anger and rage that can lead somebody to choose evil. I mean, the, the Joker character is an evil character, and he choose he's he chooses evil, but it's his pathway to that choice that is interesting in the movie. And people always think of the Heath Ledger, the timeless Heath Ledger performance in Batman, uh, the second Batman. I always get it, the Dark Knight, right? The Dark Knight, um, which Heath Ledger is the most interesting part of that movie, really. You know, those Batman movies, people get mad at me when I say this. There's a lot of weird stuff that doesn't really, the plot doesn't really make sense, and they skip over things. And there's a lot of holes in those Batman movies. I know producer Mark is shaking his head. You're all agreeing with producer Mark on this one. But there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't make any sense. Uh, that all said, Heath Ledger does an amazing job in that movie. You'd think that you wouldn't want to take on a role that's so iconic because Heath Ledger also died after making that movie and got an Oscar posthumously. Uh, 
then you look at what Joaquin Phoenix does in this role, and it's certainly worthwhile. I don't know why Joaquin Phoenix thinks he needs to lecture us, though, about drinking milk. I, I, it's just, I suppose for some of these actors, they've, they, can, they have so much public recognition and so much adulation from many people that they, I, I don't know, I'd really be curious to get into the psychology of why actors think we need to hear their political takes when most of them are ill-educated, undereducated, and uh, intellectually nothing to, they're, they're in no position to tell the rest of us what's, this is like the, uh, the Richie, Ricky Gervais line about how nobody cares what you think actors Stop. Now, that's not true about all actors, right? James Woods is back on Twitter now. I think James James Woods, but I like James Woods on Twitter because he's super clever and insightful and, and fierce. And if you've never seen it, I mean, he just goes after it. So he's good at Twitter. That's why I like him so much on Twitter. He's not just, you know, writing some idiot talking point, thinking that he's some genius and crying about climate change or milking cows. But I also would note, you know, animals, you know, we live in the animal kingdom, folks. You know, human beings... You know, we ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do. Anyway, let's drink milk. You know, let's be able to drink milk without feeling guilty about it. It doesn't mean, I mean, animal cruelty is something that we should all avoid. But we are part of the food chain. And I don't think that's going to that's going to be changed anytime soon. And the, the lecturing you get from the Hollywood elite here about, <laughs> about drinking milk. I mean, if you're really going to take it to that extent, well, then we shouldn't have honey either because honey is... Uh, we're stealing from bees. But I would have you note that bees steal from flowers. They take the nectar from the flowers. And yes, yes, they pollinate flowers as well. But they're still, they're not asking those flowers before they, those flowers have not consented. There's no consent for the flowers. The bees just come in and they they steal that nectar. They just take it. Those are bee colonizers, bee oppressors. It's true of other animals as well. You know, there are plenty of other animals out there who will will eat eat other creatures and you have to wonder okay well wh- why is the chicken why is the chicken able to eat worms but we're not able to eat a chicken those worms have feelings kind of i think they actually have like a very limited brain stem but still those worms have feelings you know producer mark this is where i have to ask a very important question sure. what what does the fox say and why did the chicken cross the road? I've been trying to figure it out since I was right. a child. I, I just, I think Joaquin Phoenix may have these answers for us. He might. We need to let him speak a little bit more. Oh, and then we had we had Brad Pitt, who I will say, I was kind, I'm kind of a pro Brad Pitt's uh, work guy. I, I like him as an actor. I don't know why he has to tick me off and do this, but he did it. You know, he did the classic dumb Hollywood lip thing of, oh, I'm a liberal in Hollywood. I have to just. Bow before the Democrat Party. Play 13. Thank you to the Academy for this honor of honors. They told me I only have 45 seconds up here, which is 45 seconds more than the Senate gave John Bolton this week. Ha, ha, ha. So clever. He went on to say that he wants, uh, what's the guy, what's the super overrated director's name? Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, that's right. I said it. Quentin Tarantino to make a movie where the adults do the right thing in the end. I was like, can't you just stand up, man? You know, you're one of the you're allegedly or reportedly, I should say, not allegedly, reportedly one of the only guys in Hollywood to really stand up to Harvey Weinstein when he's being a, being scum. And you've made you've made all these great movies. Can't you just can't you just inspire people by making more great movies and and telling great stories? You know, not 
not remind us that you're not very smart and that you know you're ba- you basically won the genetics lottery and you're also you've thrown yourself into a pretty fine actor like okay great but I don't need to hear from I don't Brad Pitt doesn't know squat about John Bolton or the deep state or any of this you know you know it's less than the average person but he's going to get up on stage and but this is what this is what Hollywood does and people who say oh buck I don't really care it's fine for you to not care. that, and, and the Oscars is boring. It's a boring thing. It's a good thing to have on in the background while you're doing something else, right? Because it's just kind of decent white noise. Uh, but the Oscars are generally boring. Oh, I also loved how uh, this thing that now if you're a – the female directors didn't win this year. And so you had – oh, another person I think is very overrated, Natalie Portman. I mean, I'm not a Natalie Portman person. I don't get it. I've never I I don't think she's the most beautiful woman in the world, not even close, not even a little bit. I don't think she's an amazing actress. I don't get it. Uh but she was at the uh, you know Hollywood thing last night the red carpet and she had the I think it was the I don't know if it was the names or the faces of all these female directors embroidered into her, you know, $20,000 gown or whatever that was made for her by some fancy designer. It's like that's that's right. They're they're going to conquer they're going to conquer sexism through high fashion on the red carpet at the Oscars. Yeah. People are asking this question. Why didn't the uh, Birds of Prey, I think is the movie, right? That Yeah, Birds of Prey. Why didn't young males go see Birds of Prey, which has uh, some of these female comic book characters in it, including Harley Quinn, I think is her name, who's from the Suicide Squad movie, which was a terrible movie, by the way. Unwatchable trash of a movie. But she is very, uh, she's an attractive female. What? Yeah, Harley Quinn is the Joker's girlfriend. Oh. Yes. Right, right. Thank yeah. you. Right. But she's in the Suicide Squad movie. Yes. Yeah. That was terrible. Yeah, okay. yeah which was a terrible movie. Yeah, Thank you. It was you. a horror. They had some weird, like, South American god that was a, like, the whole thing made no sense. It's very weird. Yeah. Garbage movie. Uh, but Harley Quinn is, they're, they're saying, because she was not as, like, uh, sexy in this Birds of Prey movie, young men wouldn't go see it. It's like, no, maybe it was just a bad movie. Maybe this year, female directors just made bad movies, especially when they try to make woke feminist movies about, uh, you know, superheroes and supervillains and stuff like that. Maybe people just don't like it. That's possible. It reminds me, I was, I was so disappointed. Well, I shouldn't be disappointed. I guess I should expect it when, uh, what's the guy's, Dan Aykroyd got all huffy with everybody and said that everyone who didn't like the the female, all-female Ghostbusters remake was some... You know, toothless Trump, blah, blah, blah. You know, the usual kind of elite snub of of uh, of Trump people, Trump voters. It's like, no, that movie was that movie was an abomination. The female the all female Ghostbusters reboot is one of the worst pieces of trash I've ever seen in a for a major Hollywood studio to put out. And I mean that it's like top 10 worst movies all time for a major Hollywood picture. And yet they blame they blame us for not liking it. Maybe it's just bad. Maybe female directors this year didn't make a really good movie. That is possible, right? We don't have to be lectured about this, but you know, wokeness, wokeness is a disease of the mind. Wokeness just burrows a hole in the center of people's brains, allows them to not be able to use their critical faculties of thought and reason. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. We made ours go up to 11. 
It's time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton or Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. Let us get to it, shall we? First up, Jason writes, Producer Mark, don't take guff from Buck over Clemson. While you were wrong over location, Buck was even more clueless about it. Don't let him get away with shenanigans. Is this like is Jason like your first cousin or something? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. As I say, producer Mark's family is now writing in, I can see. All right. I mean, you know, trust me. One thing you all one thing y'all don't ever have to worry about is producer Mark taking too much guff. It's not a problem. It's not a not a what thing. Do you mean, what do you mean it's not a problem? You you don't take guff. I don't? No, you Since do not when? Take, you do not take guff. Dude, you huh? are a salty fellow. We both know this. I, I give it and take it. Well, I mean, you'll take guff in good nature, but I'm saying you don't take too much guff. No, well, not in a mean way. No, of course, yeah. You never oh, have to worry, about, or just in general, you just you just don't take guff. Huh. You're not you're not a, you're not a guy who who uh, deals with the nonsense. Mm. Ken, hey Buck, just tried to contact Mitt's web page. It's down for maintenance. I guess the guy needs to hide from us. Oh, Ken, yeah. I mean, Mitt Romney is not somebody that we're really thinking about anymore, are we? Good job, Mitt. You sold out your side. All all for the glory of Mitt. Not much more beyond that. That's that's all I can tell you about it is that Mitt made the wrong move and he's entitled to make the wrong move or he has the he has the right to be wrong and he was. Ken, hey Buck, just try to contact Mitt's webpage. I'm sorry, we just did that one. Judy, buy blueberries when they're on sale. Rinse and freeze in a single layer on a tray. Once frozen about 30 minutes to an hour, keep in a plastic bag in the freezer. Hmm, that sounds like probably a good plan. Um, I I I had brie recently that I wasn't going to eat because I'm a I'm a uh, I'm a from I'm a walking talking fromagerie. Is like, this the emergency brie? Yeah, you gotta have emergency brie. Sure, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I froze it, and I don't know if it's gonna be any good. But the next time I'm having like some people over for some brie, some, some cabernet oh. and and gluten free crackers, I'm gonna bust out that frozen brie Is like a often? civilized fellow. Is this often you have people over for gluten-free crackers and brie? I have aspirations of doing so. So, <laughs> so we'll see. That would require a hangout with other human beings, yeah. though. And you do live in Manhattan, yeah. so your apartment can't be bigger than the Freedom Hut. No, no, no. Yeah. It's yeah, no. It's it's a tight it's a tight squeeze. Yeah. Just just enough room in the freezer for the brie, though. Philip, what was that great steakhouse in Baltimore you mentioned a while back? I'm going soon, Philip. I'm glad you're asking this question uh, because it is called the Prime Rib. It is in Baltimore. It's just amazing. It's very expensive, so it's you're not getting a deal there. You know, you're the the prime rib steak. I think there you're running about I think sixty bucks, maybe sixty five. So it's not a, not an inexpensive place at all. But I'm telling you, if you're going to go through town there, the prime rib in Baltimore is it's the steak is amazing. I mean, it's it may be my favorite steakhouse. I like Keens here in New York a lot too in Midtown. Uh, I'm not a Luger's guy. Peter Luger's Steakhouse is very, very famous, and they've got their own steak sauce that they sell everywhere. And I'm, I'm, I've never really been as, as much of a Luger's guy. I, I like Keen's. Uh, but, yeah, check out the prime rib. And they do have a great prime rib, too, but get the prime rib steak in Baltimore. You'll be very happy. Ernest, uh, hey, Buck, when I cut the cable, you were there. Glad to have found what I consider the best balance of pr- uh, pragmatic commentary Solid analysis and spot-on Elizabeth Warren impressions. Great to be able to get you in the house on Pluto and in the car. Best of luck on the WOR radio show launch. Shields High. Ernest, thank you so much, man. I really do appreciate that. Remember, tonight, if you're listening to this and you're in the New York area, first of all, this show stays exactly the same. Nothing changes. 
wherever you listen, whenever you listen. It's exactly the same show. We are adding an hour of programming for a New York-based, New York-focused show, but it'll still be national-level content, too, in terms of stories. Uh, And you can listen on the iHeartRadio app, W-O-R. That is the station. And uh, it's 710 a.m. if you're in the tri-state area of New York City. And team, the more of you that can tune in and listen, the more you can spread the word about that, uh, is very, very important in these early days that we get solid audience response to our WOR show, 6 to 7 Eastern, Monday through Friday here in New York City. Uh, this is this will be a this is a big moment for for the Freedom Hut. So please do listen in tonight if you can, and please do spread the word. Victor Buck, your impressions are the best. Pelosi and gurgling Gergen are my favorites. By the way, your Popeye voice was fine. Let producer Mark try some impressions before he gets all judgy. Keep up the good work. Congrats on WOR Shields High. See producer Mark. Uh, my my Popeye was fine. Okay. I was about to go, hi, diddly dee, and act as life for me. But that's actually from Pinocchio. That's not that's Yeah, not you Popeye. really need to get your cartoons My cartoons straight, are getting yeah. all, cartoons are getting all kinds of confused yeah, and messed yeah, up. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. But see, Victor, Victor likes it. Bradley, great call on the reverse sear buck. Went with New York's, but should have done the ribeye. Still unbelievable. Going back to the bacon weave, try a s'more with a bacon weave to replace the gram cracker um guys i did a i just on, on the fly while i was watching the uh, oscars last night i had thought a ribeye and i was like you know what i can't let this go to waste so even though i had a little bit of uh, a little bit of mexican in the fridge too i i had i made a I seared a ribeye for myself reverse sear and I, I i crushed it last night it was perfect i'm telling you it's the way to do it man you just won't the only thing is don't leave it in the oven too long before you check the temperature because if you get there if you have it in the oven at 250 and you leave it, let's say, 35, 40 minutes, you're going to internal temperature is going to be like 140, 150. And now you're just now it's just a hockey puck and not the fun kind that producer Mark likes. The, the tasteless. I've True. ruined my steak kind, which is upsetting. You can't play hockey with it either. And you and it doesn't even work yeah. as a hockey puck. Yeah. yeah. So that's even it's you're losing on all ends here. By the way, do you have any good meals this weekend? You stay home, you hang out, what do you do? Uh, yeah, I had one. There was a place on Long Island we went to before the Little Mermaid. Is the Italian the best is, is, is Italian the best option usually out by you in Long Island or you got other uh, stuff? Oh, I mean, there's a good there's everything. everything. Yeah. yeah. But I, I mean, there's some Long Island's a very places. big place. Yeah. It should really probably be its own state. Oh yeah, you can make that argument. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, Nassau County is a giant giant uh, giant and Suffolk County's even bigger. It's just less popular. Yeah, less popular. I mean in terms of population, but yeah, no, guys, I'm telling you, reverse sear. You're just, you'll just have the steak exactly the way you want it every time. And really, I mean, when you sear that thing on top, too, it's a nice way. When you finish that off, ooh, man, it's it's the way to do it. So tonight we kick off our fourth hour of the Buck Sexton Show at 6 to 7 Eastern on WOR. If you get a chance, uh, please check us out in the New York City area. Those who aren't in New York City, if you want to hear a New York-focused show, you can listen in on the iHeartRadio app from anywhere you get cell service or Wi-Fi. And uh, also, please continue to send us your thoughts, your your hopes, your aspirations, your funny jokes, whatever you got for roll call, because that's a fun part of the show that we need. We need you for that to work, and you keep sending in stuff, so I appreciate that. Also, tell somebody about the Buck Sexton Show. Pass the buck, and we'll be back with you tomorrow. Shields high.